Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from somewhat beautiful Portland. Yeah, not bad today, just a little cloudy. And Austin Gill. Hello from feeling left out with having another podcaster that lives in the same city and we can talk about the same weather, San Diego. <laughs> it's great today in San Diego, isn't it? It's just it's just the best weather. Oh, that's nice. That was, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's actually not, cool. but, you know, maybe in the part of town. Wanted to get down into the low 70s or something and you guys are all freezing or what? Oh, man, we got some clouds today. We're overcast, but we got oh, yeah, hit by a... I, I feel your pain. A, like a, yeah, we had a heat wave the last few days. It was it was pretty toasty. Oh, I'm going to say we live in North San Diego real quick, and we are also overcast, so we can yeah. all pretend to be in the same place. Way North San Diego. Yeah. <laughs> hey, folks, do you love keeping track of what's going on in the VIEW community? Maybe you're a little overwhelmed with all the new stuff. Well, don't be. Come join us at VIEW Remote Comp. VIEW Remote Conf is going to be a three-day online conference. We're actually going to have a fourth day the day before where we watch our favorite videos from VIEW conferences over the last year. We'll also have talks from our favorite guests from around the VIEW community, as well as our panelists from the Views on VIEW podcast. So if you're out there looking for great VIEW content that'll help you stay current with your web development skills, then come check us out at viewremoteconf.com. That's viewremoteconf.com. So today is another panelist episode, and... We thought it would be interesting to talk about the different frameworks that are built on top of Vue, because everyone knows, you know, we're, we're a Vue podcast. We're talking about Vue, but there's other implementations that use Vue to do different things. So I want to talk a little bit about those. Obviously, the first one that people should be familiar with is the Vue CLI. I'd call that the base framework on top of Vue. Does that sound right to you too? Yeah, it's. I feel like the Vue CLI is where like most well, most view projects outside of these other ones that we're going to talk about, but like if you're just, you know, working with plain server or client rendered view apps, like most of them are going to be using the view CLI, but it's kind of taken for granted that, you know, view is an excellent framework and, and one of their design design decisions was to make it um, easy to plug and play and just like drop a script tag into a browser and just like start hacking away with some view code, which is cool, but yeah, VCLI is definitely a, a sort of framework or generates a framework in itself. Yeah, I don't know if I would call it a framework that sits on top of Vue. I would think of more of a tool that underlies Vue that allows you to get up and run it, get up and running. You know, you can run it to easily scaffold a project and you know add your configuration options into it as you scaffold it, and you can create plugins to do different things. But I don't know if I'd call it something that sits on top more than underneath and and enables you to build with Vue. Yeah, it's more like a command line interface. Is that what CLI stands for? Command line interface. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. It's more like a command line interface. That's brilliant. It is, yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. Uh, Unless, yeah. of course, you're using the, the GUI that it also ships with, in which case it's a graphical user interface. That's a, that, yeah, that, now, that's a framework built on top of the CLI, maybe. I guess you could call true. it that way. I don't know. True. We could quibble about semantics all we want. But yeah. The, the CLI has a GUI. I never have. I mean, it always looked really interesting. You could do some cool things with it, you know, just spin up another site from the GUI, you know, and, and add. I think you can install uh, from NPM using that and do various and sundry other things. I'm just one of those people that when it, there are certain things that I prefer to do from the command line, like Git, as compared to a GUI. So personally, no, I don't have a lot of experience with the CLI GUI. 
I've used it some. I don't personally get a lot of benefit out of it, but it's it's been an interesting experience to look at. I, I've enjoyed the graphs that it gives of the the packages that you've downloaded and installed compared to your own code that you've written. And yeah, it's really easy to add uh, plugins for the Vue CLI. So if you want to bring in Electron or Cordova or something, it's very straightforward. You don't have to go out to NPM and find what the package is. You can just search it right in there. Yeah, it was. I remember when it first came out, I thought that was one of, I thought it was a game changer. I thought it was one of the coolest things and so innovative. And I mean, I, I think it really is. It's really awesome. And I'm, I'm sure it onboards a lot of people easily. But yeah, I don't really use it very much. I'm just kind of in there in the in the command line and get my npm run serve command, and then I just start hacking away on the code. It is really cool. I think the I think the core team member Guillaume Chow was behind it. I want to say, and he actually released something called Node GUI. I think that's kind of the same thing, but just uh, for any sort of Node project, which also looks pretty cool. Is that the, the GUI JS that they announced it? GUI uh, JS, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I got, I got it installing, got to play with it, which was interesting. But now that we're way off topic. Framework on top of a framework. <laughs> top of a framework. So a few episodes ago, we talked about Gridsome. Gridsome is another one of the, I, I would say that's a framework built on top of Vue. Uh, the concept of Gridsome being you're building a static website that's able to pull in data from a number of sources via GraphQL. So you're not just writing standard view syntax, you're also writing uh, GraphQL, you're also writing uh, configuration files, and you're needing to put the view components into particular folders so that they do uh, particular things. So if you want a page, you need to put it in the pages folder, things like that. So that's that's one of the, the frameworks that I have a lot of experience with. I've worked on a few different Gridsome sites. I really enjoy it. If you haven't listened to that previous episode, it's a wonderful episode. Yeah, you're running your blog with Gridsome, right? Yes. I have my blog. I have a couple other websites, one for a, a health clinic that I am a part of. That's that's interesting. So I have I have questions about that because as it pertains to like sites in production, because Gridsome follows it's it's really like fully embracing kind of the same thing if you're coming from React World and you're familiar with Gatsby. Both of these projects really embrace the full-on like static site and like Jamstack sort of vibe, where you have your code base and you're making changes, and then when it's time to deploy, your whole site is going to build on demand, or like I guess not on demand. It's going to build at <laughs> build time, and then uh, <laughs> you're going to deploy it to some production environment and it's, and it's just going to going to deploy like static html css and javascript right but all of that yes. it's kind of weird because it's you know dynamic on one hand because you're pulling data let's say you have like a a wordpress backend or sanity or something like that some sort of cms and when a new piece of content is added or changed you have to like rebuild your site to generate the new HTML that's going to be deployed to these like static hosts, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I guess I, I never got around to my question. My question is like, how is that working out for, for your client in managing their site? You know, do you have like some sort of some sort of uh, webhook that 
when they make a change to a page, it triggers, I mean, I guess the first question is, are they running some sort of content management system that they can make changes to the site in a uh, non-technical user-friendly fashion? And then is that triggering a new build with a webhook or something like that? So at the moment for the health clinic, uh, there is no additional CMS. I, I am using some markdown files myself uh, so that I can lay out an easy grid. I didn't have to put in arrays into JavaScript that way. That said, if there were a content management system like Contentful or Sanity.io, there is a webhook uh, that would then trigger a Netlify build. So all, all of my sites are also hosted on Netlify. So it's, it's pretty straightforward to just hook up a webhook between a CMS and Netlify to trigger a new build. In addition to that, for my, my personal website, on, on my front page, I'm showing like my top six recent GitHub repos that I've worked on. And then they link back and show the language and stuff. For that, I'm pulling it straight from GitHub, but that can change pretty periodically depending on what projects I'm working on. So for that, I set up a weekly webhook with Zapier or Zapier. I'm not sure how to pronounce it that once every week on Sunday at noon, it will rebuild my website for me. So I don't have mm. to worry about any additional hooks from GitHub as I make pushes to all of the, the various repos I have. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I would be really curious to, to see how some of these projects play out because I know, I know the Gatsby team and the Next.js team have like started implementing these ideas of like incremental builds. So if you mm-hmm. have... You know, on a small on a small company website, like it's not going to take long to have to rebuild the entire site every time you publish a new blog post. But like New York Times or you know some news site that has new content, you know, dozens of editors working on it, making changes to existing uh, articles and new articles being published all the time, like and the homepage showing the most recent whatever. I'd be curious to see how. You know, I I can't even wrap my head around how they're doing sort of incremental builds for static sites. Like, you know, if I if I publish a new blog post, that's going to affect where the you know the page where the blog post exists, but then also potentially the homepage where there is some sort of news feed for the latest blog post, and then also my author page where it lists all of the blog posts that I've written, and maybe some archive page because my post is part of some taxonomy that, you know, it's talking about view, right? So all of those pages need to be kind of regenerated. So yeah, it, it blows my mind, but it's really fascinating. It's, it's pretty exciting to see because if, if, if that can get solved and, and like rebuild pages with tens of thousands or hundreds of, or sites with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pages relatively quickly, then that's, that's really cool. Yeah, that's been a real sticky wicket for a number of years. I've heard you know, various people talking about that and and how that exactly how that would work for a large site. I remember I always remember the first first thing I ever saw that was sort of illustrated about how this whole process worked was is a pretty well known blog post. It was a case study for Gatsby done by Harry's Razors, where they built an e commerce site for their Flamingo line of products, women's products, using Gatsby. And they hosted on S3 and uh, I think it was Netlify. But anyway, one of the specific points that they address in the case study is that exact thing. How do you do a full build or do you do an incremental build? And or, or they would like to be able to do the incremental build. And they 
you know, give their reasons for choosing to do a full build every time. Yeah, we know that's going to be an issue, but we've got Fastly for caching and there's various ways that they address it. But yeah, if you can address that case where you've got a huge site, tons of pages, and and you can just incrementally build one particular page, then that's that's going to be a game changer. That'll be huge. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if y'all have heard about the latest release from ne- the Next.js team. Yeah, I yeah. did. I heard about it on another pod. I think it was like Shop Talk or one of the other podcasts they were talking to somewhere from Next about that. Or Next, excuse me. Yeah, it's really awesome. They were saying that like it's basically, it's kind of like the combination of static and server rendered, which we'll talk about when we cover the Next stuff. But basically, like you have a page and maybe like, Maybe it's a dynamic route, right? Like uh, the blog post that I was talking about. And if someone makes a request to that page, if it doesn't exist, like Next will build out that page on demand on the server and then store a version of it in some like local temp folder as a cache. And you can probably set do some sort of, you know, caching logic or, or caching validation logic there. But you know the first so essentially the first time someone goes to that page they're going it's the the server is going to have to build it and then the second time someone goes to that page it'll just pull it from the cache so it'll build the static version and just like serve that which is you know kind of the 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 direction we're all trying to go i think i was looking for a uh, post by Kent C. Dodds uh, since we were talking about Gatsby with incremental builds i couldn't find it his his website is built using Gatsby and with their incremental builds and their builds that they built. He was able to get his build speeds down to just a couple minutes from, I think, like 10 or 20 minutes. So I think the incremental build stuff is definitely coming along. I did see on the Gridsome page, they uh, have that as one of their features that they're working on, but it's definitely a complicated one. So I don't think it's going to be happening anytime soon. Yeah, it'll be cool. I mean, I guess we should speak a little bit to like, why, why if... If there's such a downside to building, you know, or having to wait so long for an, a large site to build, like why would I want a static site in the first place? So, for me, the the reason I wanted a static site is I got tired of paying for suboptimal service from companies like HostGator, and I, I know HostGator can be an excellent uh, provider, but I ran my WordPress blog on HostGator, and I did not enjoy it. And I didn't really enjoy working with their customer support when things did go wrong. My last company, their their website's hosted on HostGator as well. And it, it just wasn't an ideal experience for me. In addition to that, all of my posts were stored in a database that I was then tied to. I couldn't move my website anywhere. I, it, it, took, it would take all this effort just to migrate from one service to another, which I had done at one point just to be done with one provider and go to the next. And I was just tired of that. I wanted to store everything in Markdown files. I wanted to have all of the the stuff that I had written myself. So rather than be reliant on a server, be reliant on a database, I went with a static site so that I could control all of that and just put it up anywhere. So I could go on GitHub, have a .io blog, or I could have my website somewhere else. And I went with Netlify because they had additional functionality that I liked. But you definitely can't beat the price as well, since you can host a static site for free. So, so you're saying the number one reason to go with Gridsome or a static site generator is to stick it to the man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that, we talked a little bit about 
server side and Nuxt. Do you want to just take that on, uh, Steve or Austin? Yeah, I mean, I, I you talk. have some experience with this, Steve. Yeah, I've done I've done some Nuxt stuff. So with Nuxt, there's a few different ways you can you can deploy that, and there's different methods you can use inside of your code to uh, get the data and fetch it. You can build it. There's always three ways to deploy, and I always forget the third. I remember the first two. But you can do it gridsome style, basically as a static site generator, where you run a build and it generates all your HTML, and then you just deploy that and you're off and running. You can do it in universal mode, I believe, where you can, you'll get server-side rendered data, but it's actually querying from the back end, and then it passes it to the front end. And then the way it runs is once everything's loaded, then it treats it as a SPA, single-page application from there. So it's very quick. With that kind of structure, you have to have a node server running. So uh, you need something like what maybe Heroku or somewhere where you can run on a node server. I ran into this when I was hosting with Netlify that Netlify specifically says in their documents, no, we don't support that. We're not designed to support that. We're designed for Jamstack sites. And so you have to use, I think, the next run generate command in order to generate the static site, and then they host that. And then, like I said, within your components, if you just want to be able to query wherever your data is, whether it's a headless CMS or you know wherever you want to do it, they have like an async data method where you can actually query it at runtime and build your page. And then, like I said, it goes into, into spa mode. So yeah, there's a, there's a few different options there. But the basic idea with Next is same as with Gatsby, is to have server rendered pages with the, probably the primary issue that people are concerned about when they want to use server generated is SEO, search engine optimization, because you have the rendered HTML and Google's going to pick that up very easily as compared to maybe not getting some of your page data because the JavaScript has to go render it first when the bot comes crawling. Yeah, that was great. I know with Next, uh, which I used for a project at work, I had to worry about whether the JavaScript was running on the client or the server and do checks to exactly. validate where it was happening. You have to do the same thing in Nuxt, right? Yes. Yeah, there are some places. And I can remember going through... The, the way I learned Nuxt probably the best was a Maximilian Schwarzmiller course that he had on Udemy about Nuxt and using Nuxt. And he went in great detail and showed putting breakpoints or console log statements in different places where you could tell if something was coming from the client versus from the server and what was logged and when it was logged and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's definitely something you have to take into consideration because, for instance, I believe when you're running from this async data on the server side, this isn't available because the component hasn't been mounted yet, you know, various things like that. So it's definitely something because you've got two places where standard view, all you're worrying about is a front end and querying data somewhere on your back end. Well, now in this type of application, you have both server side and client side to be concerned about. Yeah, I know that's always a, a challenge for people that are not used to it and like maybe used coming from a, a single page application mode and, and moving into Nuxt. It's like you're trying to make a, a fetch request or something and, you know, fetch is not defined in Node. I know also for like myself, library maintainers, this is a challenge because sometimes we design our libraries with the, you know, the the idea that the window object is going to be defined, but then someone uses it in like or pulls your project into a server rendered app and all of a sudden it breaks and you're getting spammed with all sorts of GitHub issues. Yeah, that's that's separate separate from the whole like view and and 
backend stuff, but just yeah, be aware of. It's always good to be aware of which uh, context your code is going to be running in. Speaking of which, uh, just touching back on Gridsum for a second. If you do anything with window or or the document or something like that, you also need to do that kind of check because the Gridsum website is built in Node, and so any references to window will fail because there is no window in Node. Just something to keep in mind. I may or may not have made one of those extra reports to Austin that he's referring to Beth. <laughs> no, well, yeah. I, so I want, I mean, I think library authors should also be cognizant of it. And like, ideally, you know, it's on my to-do list to make my library server side rendering friendly. But yeah, I know, I know also as like a, as a project builder, like that was, uh, that was something that I ran into the first time around with both like Gridsum and Nux, something to be aware of. We should also mention actually that, that both of these projects are built on top of Vue and they both have, they both have their own like opinions on how to do things. So there's things like the folder structure has to be in a, in a specific way for Nux and Grids. And for some folks coming maybe from like a traditional like server or like PHP like rendered thing where you just have like uh, different directories in the server are just rendered and that's how you make pages. Both of them work kind of the same way. It's, it's actually pretty intuitive, but you don't necessarily, it doesn't work the same way. Like the routing doesn't work the same way as as with view router, for example. Yeah. That was one of the things that drew me to Nux uh, because I had originally started with PHP. And when I saw Nux, Nux could just put in pages in a pages folder and it just loaded properly. I was like, sign me up. I've got my framework. Life is good now. I definitely appreciate that coming from the server side. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think I think they both they've both of those projects have made good decisions or like intuitive decisions on, you know, how to build stuff. Hey folks, are you trying to figure out how to stay current with React Native? Maybe you heard the Chain React conference was canceled and you're a little bit sad about that. Well, I borrowed their dates and I'm doing an online conference. So if you want to come and learn from the best of the best from React Native, then come do it. We have people like Christopher Shadow from Facebook. He's going to come and he's going to talk to us and answer questions about the origins of React Native. We're also going to have Gant Laborde from Infinite Red and several of the panelists and past panelists from React Native Radio. So come check it out at reactnativeremoteconf.com. That's reactnativeremoteconf.com. Another pretty well-known framework on top of Vue is ViewPress. Now, I don't have any experience with this one, but it looked pretty cool. I was considering building a website with it just to experiment. Austin, I believe you have experience with it though, right? Yeah, yeah. ViewPress, ViewPress is awesome. It was built by the core Vue team. And I think, I think it was built to kind of scratch their own itch where they wanted to build... It's another, it's another tool for building static sites, but it, it's kind of... It, well... It was built, I believe, to scratch their own itch in like documentation. So the view documentation website is built using ViewPress. And the benefits are that it's kind of designed to work with markdown files and generate a static site so that you can host it anywhere. It's fast. It works. You know, uh, It's good for SEO. All, all the benefits you get from a static site. But specifically, it just like works really well if you wanted to have, for example, content that's rendered from markdown files. So yes, documentation sites, but also like 
blogs or, I don't know. Yeah, like blogs it works really well for. Yeah, um, that was my understanding was that it's specifically designed for documentation, but I've seen people talk about doing it and uh, there's like, I, I don't know if there's some plugins for it. There's a couple of things you can do to pretty easily use that for a, for a blog as well. Yeah, so it's pretty funny to see like it it works it's built really well for documentation and so you and it's just like really easy to use. So you see a lot of sites uh a lot of projects that are not view based projects that are using ViewPress for their documentation and it it seems kind of funny it it makes a lot of sense because you know at the end of the day it's so easy to use and it's easy to get up and running. And then all you need is to add, you know, you just need to learn how to use markdown files. And then it's really intuitive to add new pages or edit documentation and all that. So it makes a lot of sense. I like it a lot. I've used it for the documentation for utensils. I've used it for, used it for another site. I don't remember, but it works really well. And it has a lot of things built in. Well, again, there's there's kind of a difference between ViewPress and the default theme that ViewPress comes with. So the default theme works really well for documentation because it gives you kind of built in all the things you need. You get like a little homepage template and then you get, you know, when you get into the actual like markdown files or the pages rendered by markdown files, you get what you expect from modern documentation, which is like a sidebar that has all of the pages and different and links to different sections of the page so you can navigate really quickly. It's got a search feature so you can search. You have like built-in search and it also integrates with Algolia search really easily. So yeah, that stuff's easy. But then you also have kind of this other this other aspect of the fact that it's it's a static site generator and it it's kind of extensible. And so you can have plugins and themes. And so theme authors can actually make sites that have uh, predefined like templates and you just put in your markdown files to edit the content of those templates. So again, you know, for blogging, that works really well because you can just have a markdown file that has all your blog content. And then in the, uh, what is it? The, the content up at the top of the markdown file, it's like, I forget what that's called, but it's where you can set the like- The front matter. The front matter, yes, thank you. In the front matter, you can set the meta details to customize maybe like which template it's using or I don't know if it's got a, a header image or, you know, it kind of depends on the theme, like what what the theme op- options surface. So it's pretty cool. It's it's really intuitive and easy. I use it mostly for documentation. I, I would consider it using it for my personal blog. I haven't explored a lot of yeah, the I'm- themes though. I'm I'm looking at a, a blog post right now on LogRocket where they talk about turning views into a personal blog, and it looks extremely straightforward. I'm going to have to play with this. Yeah, I think you know the only reason you actually need to know view is if you wanted. I mean, to use this is if you wanted to create your own custom theme or to edit an existing theme. But if you find one that you like and you just want to have like your own maybe a personal blog site and you find a theme that looks good and you just want to write in Markdown, this is a perfectly good candidate. Whether you know, even you don't even need to know JS, I think. Just Markdown. Maybe a little bit of JavaScript to configure it. <laughs> cool. Thank you. Yeah. So those are the ones that I have the most experience and knowledge about. There's a couple of others that I have heard of. 
And one of those is Quasar. Does anyone want to talk about Quasar? I just know the name and that it seems cool. Now, quasars are these really bright stars that astronomers use to measure. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I can speak a little bit to this. I haven't used it directly, but you know, we can do like a broad strokes overview. I have, right. I run this. I'm jumping on their website as we speak. So yeah. Yeah, me too. I'll back you um, up. But I, I, I'm one of the organizers for the San Diego JavaScript community. And one of the people that helped run the view meetup, he's all about Quasar. He uses it at work and, and has given a lot of talks on it. And essentially you can, it allows you to build from a single code base. It allows you to build in out to several different platforms that you can build for the web and, but you can also build like mobile apps or desktop, desktop apps or, you know, server side render apps or progressive web apps, all of these things just from your one code base, which every time he gives a talk about it sounds way too good to be true. I mean, that's kind of how I've always felt about it is how is this capable of doing all of these things? That seems like a monumental task, even if it were a, a full company, and this looks like it's just a, a regular open source project. I'm on their site now, and you know they basically say uh, like why you would want to choose it is it's built on Vue. Uh, it uses material like the UI, builds out to desktop apps, mobile browsers, single page applications, server render, PWA. But then you can also customize the CSS and JS, and it's you know performance focus and tree shaking and all this cool stuff. But yeah, like my experience is, you know, mostly watching someone else. And I saw him build a brand new app that he actually deployed, not to the production, but he had the local dev tools running and he deployed it to like an Android app, the browser and an iPhone app in a five minute talk. Yeah. I will have, I will pour into this then to try and understand how they're doing all of it. Yeah. I, I see they have I their own CLI. Yeah. I would probably... Like the only reason I haven't actually used this is because I don't build cross-platform tools or I haven't had a need to build cross-platform tools yet. If I did, this would probably be my number one choice. Yeah, I've got a, a side project that I'm wanting to, to make this turn-based strategy game that would be playable on browser, desktop, and mobile. More for fun and learning than it seems like an excellent way to get that accomplished. So Austin, yeah, what does this do for the... Is it just use standard view in terms of whatever you want to use for your backend for your data store, like ahead of CMS or local markdown or stuff like that, or what are the options there? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't gone, I mean, I haven't, I haven't worked with it and my friend didn't really cover that. I think it'd be, it would be interesting to see, I guess I would imagine that you're writing view code and then it kind of takes that and it's got to, it's got to do like one of two approaches to build out natively, right? One is it's either building into like a web view where it's actually producing some sort of, well, it's producing like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript that would run in a browser and then kind of wrapping around the content for the browser in the native applications web view option, which works, but it's not, it's not using like native components for that operating system. Or maybe and it would be really cool, maybe it's taking your view code and kind of like 
transpiling that into the the native equivalent for each system that it's deploying to. And in that case, you know, if you're talking about how does it communicate to a backend, that's another good question. I mean, there would have to be <laughs> I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to think about that one, but if it if it's making requests over some like HTTP like an API request, then there's there's an opportunity or there's a a tool to do that in every system at this point. You know, when it builds out to a browser, it's probably going to use like fetch or you can use fetch the same way everywhere. If it builds to like an iOS app, I'm sure that there's some HTTP tool to make requests, but I don't really know. My my guess is it's probably so it building looked- to I would I would guess that it's building something and then using like a, a web wrapper around it or web view. Yeah, I just went on it for developing mobile apps. They use either Cordova or Capacitor as as the options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, once you're in there, you have you know you have the ability to use any HTML, CSS, JavaScript that you would in the browser and access to any like browser API basically. So like making a fetch request is the same everywhere. Cool. So that was Quasar. Um, I'd, I'd like to end with the future. So let's let's skip one and talk about Vapor. Okay. So Austin, you brought this one to us, but basically from what you were explaining, it's a server-side rendering framework for Vue. I just went to their documentation and it's, it's ViewPress. Yeah, uh, you can tell right away, huh? Yep. Yeah, so Vapor, like this one, this is another one of those that I thought was cool and haven't really had the chance to play with. But the thing that caught my eye about it was I've, I use ViewPress or I use Vue a lot in like a single page app mode. I don't have too much need for like server side rendering necessarily. And I've used Nuxt before and Gridsome and I, I really like them, but it's also like once you, once you have a single page app, there's a little bit of work to, to port that over to like a Nuxt app. Or once you have a Nuxt app, there's a bit of work to port it over to a single page app, a single page app, although I guess they have a single page app mode, so you may not need to do that. But the point being that like let's say you're in the middle of a project, it's hard to go like back and forth. Like I, I guess, yeah, the way that would make the most sense is I have a single page app and I wanna turn it, I wanna enable server-side rendering. So there's plenty of ways you could do that yourself. You could roll your own like Webpack client-side build and Webpack server-side build and, and go through all that headache. But probably the best solution is to like look at something like Nuxt, right? Well, that requires changing your project to work inside of how Nuxt's opinionated framework works. Vapor, on the other hand, kind of looks like a framework that um, is designed to take what you would have with a single page app in new, like in view, like uh, just what you would expect from to come out of the view CLI um, and use the view router and all this stuff, and then kind of take that and sort of add uh, server side rendering on top of it. So again, haven't used it. It looks really cool. Um, it looks like you know some of their things or some of their highlights are like simplicity first and whatever uses uses the uses whatever your your view router config file is going to be to render your server side stuff which is cool and promises a lot of easy stuff i think i tried to use it once and it didn't work but they you know 
hey, <laughs> that's how that's that's how these things go sometimes. So I hope that they've fixed it because I think it would be really cool to have the ability to go from a view single page application and easily like without just install a new dependency and and don't have to like change my whole project and I can get I can enable server side rendering. Yeah, it seems really nice, especially since you don't have to uh, move away from view CLI to do anything. That's I was running into an issue with that this weekend. I was I had downloaded one of the free Viewify themes, and then I had to convert it from a Vue CLI app into a Gridsome app to do what I had to do, and that was a little painful. But uh, something like this would definitely get the job done a lot faster. So the last one that we had on our list is a new experimental type framework called, I'm going to say it's Vitae. And Evan Yu has been working on it and tweeting about it. He's the one creating it. And it's it's dubbed as an experimental no-bundle dev server for Vue uh, single file components. The The concept, I think I think it's based on using uh, Rollup for its build step. But the, the concept is you can just run it you import your components directly into your applications or into your HTML files. You have to import it as an ES module, but then it just works. And you can do all the changes that you want in your view component. They immediately appear in the browser. There's no webpack rebuilding. There's no nothing. It just, it just works. I was trying to tab back and forth as quickly as possible between VS Code and my browser to watch it. And it was just near instantaneous. The downside that I could think of is that because you're not in a Webpack bundling environment, it's just running ES modules. You can't use the standard NPM modules that are not built for that. So if you wanted to download, I don't know if these are actually supported or not, but let's say you wanted to download Axios, but Axios didn't support ES mods. You wouldn't be able to bring it into the browser. It wouldn't work. But this is just an experiment. Evan's trying to find a new way to work on view applications that's potentially more standards compliant. And then on Twitter, he asked, I think the way he put it is, what if Vite, or what if ViewPress, but with Vite? And I think the concept he was getting at is instant reload and easy development on ViewPress to make it even faster and better for developers wanting to use it. It seems really cool. And everyone keeps asking, is this the future of Vue CLI? Is this the future of this? Is this the future of that? And so far, he's just been answering that question with, it's an experiment. Don't don't take it as anything else, but in in the bit of playing that I had with it, I would be very excited to see this as a fully supported way to work on Vue applications. It's all these different things we're talking about. I feel like uh, Julius Caesar, you know, Veni Vidi Vici, you got Vue Vapor Vite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, yeah. That's now the name of this episode. That there you go, right there. Like it, like it. Shows off um, my Latin, mad Latin skills. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Steve? The original phrase was, I came, I saw, I conquered. It was what he, Caesar told the, I think it was the Roman Senate after he had defeated a particular country or something like that. But that was the original phrase. And I'm just sort of modifying it with view nomenclature. Yeah, yeah. What does this new one mean? It's just the three names. Vite? I don't know. It's just whatever he's calling so, it. The name I mean, v- to fit. Yeah, view is view in French. That's just the, the same as the English word view. Vite. I think people were translating it as quick, but French. So Evan has a, a good track record of finding simple French words that have not been taken up as NPM packages yet. Which is sort of funny considering that he's Chinese, but right. I guess he's expanding his language uh, capabilities. 
There you go. Yeah. So the the latest development on Vitae was that they added a build step so that you can have a production. It's air quotes production because this is still an experiment. You can have a production view application that you can then deploy anywhere. And I think, like I said, that uses Rollup for its build step. But it's it's just really cool to to work with it in such a fast way. And I've I've been wanting to experiment with things like ES modules. So I the first thing I tried to do is grab packages from I think it was uh, Pika Pack or something like that because those are all supposed to be ES compatible. Didn't get very far because it was just an experiment, but it was really cool. Yeah, I, I really like the idea of this this direction for web development. So there's you know there's some challenges. There's some major challenges from taking all of the things that are available on npm that are, that don't support ES modules and making them somehow. You know, it, it would be hard to make the leap from uh, a bundle dev life to no bundler. But the benefits seem really nice. One that like I don't need to worry about weird webpack configurations. I just throw you know the the next tool that I need into uh, a script tag, right, and import it as a as a module, and that that is really nice. That also is cool because then you have the ability to cache those assets. So if I'm using I don't know something like date functions as an ES module and then someone else on another project is using date functions and I have a user that goes to that project and then comes to my website, they might already have a cache version of if we're using the same date functions version, and then they don't have to download that that module file, right? Like they already have it because maybe we're both use maybe we're both like linking to it from a CDN. So that's really cool. It's also really nice that when I make a change to my project, I can bundle just the JavaScript from my project. And that's going to be the only change that the, you know, if, if the user comes to my website again, they have all of my dependencies as modules, like they've already downloaded all of them. And then the one module that is running the JavaScript for my specific project, that's the only thing that's changed. So now they're going to be downloading a lot smaller of a bundle size um was that clear (laughs) yes it's kind of it's kind of like when you're um, installing applications let's say i'm on a windows machine and you have to have net version 4.2 for one application then you download another and that also uses net 4.2 so it's already there you don't have to do that installation step again it's already present on the machine right yeah well yes and so how it how it pertains to like our bundle JavaScript packages. Let's say, let's say you like you have you don't use any like code splitting or anything. You just put put your whole application into like your one Webpack bundle, right? If I go and like make a change, maybe fix a typo or something, the way Webpack works is it's going to create a hash for that generated bundle so that the next time a user comes to the site, they're not going to be looking at the old version of the site because they have it in the cache, generating a hash file essentially like bust that cache. So they're going to get the new version. But the problem with that is if I just make one little type of change, they have to download, they have to re-download the entire application bundle because it's all, you know, together. But what, what ES modules gives us an opportunity for is I can host all of my modules locally. And essentially, let's say I have like date functions and I don't know, what's another common tool? JavaScript tool. 
I don't know, <laughs> some other, let's say I'm using some other view library, right? Uh, and let's say I have like how about my whole Core, project. How about Core.js? Core.js, sure. Core.js and date functions. And then I have my JavaScript that I'm writing. So with ES modules or without ES modules, if I make that typo, Core.js, date functions, and my JavaScript code is going to be all bundled into one file that the user has to download and then re-download anytime I make a change, including you know, the whole Core.js, the whole date functions. With ES modules, I can have all of the module dependencies for my project as separate modules. So then when the user goes to my app the first time, they're going to download Core.js, date functions, and my application. And then I make my typo change or fix, and then I redeploy, and they reload or come back to my application they already have Core.js, so they're going to keep that from the cache. They already have date functions, and then my app has a new version, so they're going to have to download just that. So it's pulling from their cache. And then if you if if we're all using a CDN, like hosting modules from a CDN, which has its pros and cons, but if we're all hosting modules from a CDN, then it's possible that when they come to my app, even the first time, they may already have the same version of date functions and Core.js, so they don't even need to download that. Yeah, I think that sounds excellent for getting an improved performance out of websites that are heavily reliant on JavaScript. I think it's going to make a difference. Yeah, so it could, I mean, it's it's pretty cool. It, it, it would be, it theoretically, it could be really good for users. It could be really good for developers. Some, some cool resources for for this bright future are, like you mentioned, Pika. So like pika.dev is... What is it like a bundling tool or like I know that they have a CDN. Oh, it's like, it's basically like NPM for modules, right? So yeah, it's like a registry. The 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 bundler is Snowpack. Yeah. So they have they have their the sort of NPM for web modules. They also have a CDN, so similar to like NPM CDN. You can they they'll they'll host the modules for you. And then yeah, they have their bundler called Snowpack which they actually say that they're saying on the Snowpack site, they're saying that Vitae uses Snowpack. I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. To I, what I, apologize. I apologize. It is, it is Pika Pack, not Snowpack. Snowpack is separate. But they, they kind of address the same uh, topic. Yeah. But this all, like, I've been kind of keeping it on my periphery, and, and this stuff is really cool. I hope that, I'm glad that someone else is working on this because this, this is promising. Yeah. And for, for, who speaks French, I apologize for our mispronunciation. It's in the trivia at the bottom of the page. It's supposed to be pronounced something like Vite. You're not supposed to say the E, so I apologize. How too. dare you miss that? That's terrible. <laughs> People will yeah. be offended. I, I ran by my Portuguese. You say everything. Yeah, mine's the Spanish the same way. They're Latin languages. I mean, French and Spanish are both Latin romance languages. You'd think it would be yeah. the same, but apparently not. Apparently not. Are you freelancing or moonlining? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. Let's move on to picks then. Austin, I'll give you a break, actually, since you were talking last. Let's go to Steve. Steve, what are your picks for today? Okay, we're going to go children's books today. I was reminded of uh, this particular book or set of books when another firefighter from the department I belong to had done some 
book reading online geared towards kids. And he read this book that I just about had memorized when my youngest was little called Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. It's written by a pretty funny guy named Mo Willems, M-I-L, excuse me, W-I-L-L-E-M-S. And he's got a whole bunch of kids' books. In the pigeon line of books, he's got Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, Don't Let the Pigeon Stay Up Late, and The Pigeon Finds a Hot Dog and the Pigeon Wants a Puppy. So definitely Nobel Prize winning books or Pulitzer Prize or uh, anyway, whatever the awards are. Really funny. And when my when my son was probably three, he was toddler and you know I'd read books to him every night. And I had this book memorized. In fact, he had the book memorized too, so we could literally go through the book and know what was coming on the next page. So definitely sort of a little different, but really great books. Yeah, I love, also good advice. Uh, yeah, I only knew this book. And then as I started looking around at some of his other books, and, and my wife said, yeah, he's really pretty hilarious. He does stuff on YouTube, reading books and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, he's got quite the line. Yeah, my, my daughter is a big fan of the elephant and piggy books, including There's a Bird on Your Head. So I'll throw that one out as another good one. Oh, gosh, that reminds me of a funny story. I got to tell this. So one of the old time from the 70s, I think, uh, Sesame Street. And they do all, you know, they do their little video bits. And there's this one that shows just this hippo walking around. And he's got this little bird on his back. And he's singing, there's a bird on me. Oh, can't you see? There's a bird on me. And I loved it. It was one of those little Sesame Street sketches that stuck with me for my entire life. And I used to go around saying that all the time. I said, there's a bird on me. Oh, can't you see it? My wife never knew what I was talking about. And then one day she told me she was watching a, a cable channel called Noggin that has a lot of kid shows on it. And it you know, repeats of really old kid shows. And she saw that sketch. She started laughing because I finally understand why you say that all the time. Or actually, not why you say it all the time, but where you get it. Let's put it that way. That's great. Yeah, she still doesn't know why you say, say it all the time. Yeah, that's, that's a <laughs> topic of discussion right there. Austin, what are your picks for today? Lindsay, my picks, I'm going to go with some domain registration slash, well, domain management stuff. I like to use, I've used Name Silo and Porkbun as my domain registrars for a while. They're really, really affordable. And the things that I think stand out for these two there's two things that stand out. One is they both include privacy blocking. So like who is lookup where people can like find contact information about you if you like own a domain. There's a lot of registrar, like every registrar offers this, but most of them offer it for like a dollar more, which is really annoying. And the privacy blocking should just be free. So Name Silo and Porkbun both offer this. I like them both. They also both offer uh, free email forwarding for a certain number of emails, which is cool because if I register like a new domain, I usually, you know, don't necessarily want to have a whole new email inbox for that. I just want to say, hey, if you want to hit me up at this domain, like contact Austin at whatever domain.com. Um, so they both offer that, makes it easy, and that's nice. And then I'm going to pick Cloudflare for my. Well, for a lot of other stuff, I use them for my DNS hosting. So they offer a whole whole bunch of really nice products, DNS management, web application firewall, 
a bunch of security stuff, a lot. I have too much to list. Caching performance. So I'm going to pick them. Really like their stuff. Everything they put out is great. And yeah. Very nice. Thank you. So my picks today, I've been trying to think how I can socialize with my my friend group now that we're not allowed to go to each other's houses as much because of the quarantine. And one of our friends suggested playing board games online. That same week, I heard another podcast, the uh, official Ubuntu podcast, where they talked about a website called boardgamearena.com. So I went over and I checked it out. And essentially, you can sign up for free. You can play a large number of board games. And if you sign up for their paid subscription, which is like $20 a year or something, you can play some more well-known games. That includes games like Carcassonne, Seven Wonders, Race for the Galaxy. So there's there's a lot of fun games in there that can be played online. And it they tried to make their website work on mobile, considering these are large board games. They didn't 100% succeed, probably. But I at least did a little bit on it, and it was fun. So that's boardgamearena.com. Oh Carcassonne, Carcassonne is the best game. Never heard of it. Uh, a child's oh, version to play with yeah, my daughter. Yeah, okay. Carcassonne, never heard of it. Oh, yeah, it's a it. it's a tile laying game. Oh, okay. It's it's really cool. We have a, a children's version that we play with my four year old, uh, and she loves it. Ooh. So that's my can first pick. Host? The second one, <laughs> go ahead. What? I was just asking. Can you host a board game like and have like a private room? Yes. Oh, cool. So when you're, I'll, I'll, for the for the wonders of audio entertainment, we'll try and do this right now. But uh, <laughs> the when I remember setting it up yet the other day. You say which game you want to play, and then you can determine whether you want it to be uh, a private or a public game. And that's allowed in the free tier. So you can invite just your friends, or you can do a single PC so you don't have to go over the internet even. You could just do like a hot seat mode, or you can set it up to play with uh, random people on the internet. Yeah, I'm setting it up now. Let's play a game. Let's do it. Okay, no, I got. So that's my first you. pick. So, have, were yeah, either of you guys are uh, either of you old enough to remember some of the old school gaming days, the Microsoft Gaming Zone? You ever remember that? Sounds familiar. I don't think I, I did anything with it myself. So I can remember this was late '90s, so between '95 and 2000, and it was a obviously a Microsoft hosted site, but it was really cool because you could play. They had games like Cribbage and Chess and Checkers and stuff like that. I used to play uh, Cribbage online all the time. And then there were other sites. There's another associated site that had like a gaming ladder, you know, so you would find someone from the ladder and hook up and play them. And then if you win, you, you know, you report that it moved you up and down the ladder. It was really pretty cool. Considering the state of the internet back then, it was pretty advanced. And it was really a lot of fun. I remember growing up playing on, I think it was Pogo.com with a friend. Yeah, that sounds sweet. We do... We do, uh, I think we did chess and pool. There was a, a pool that had full, what's the word? The the physics around it. So you could get the stick in the right position and it, it would move the balls around properly. And right. considering this was in the, the 90s, I was highly impressed. So yeah, that was my first pick, boardgamearena.com. One game on there, I just made a pun, you'll see it in a second. One game on there, or one game that is not there is Uno. And Uno is a very simple what? game to play. And you can... Yeah, I, I didn't see it, at least. Hopefully no, it's Uno? there, but I didn't see it. Bummer. No Uno. But have no fear. We are developers. Somebody on Reddit made a variant of Uno that they named One, and they put it up <laughs> on a website. 
And so it is onegame.us. There's my pun. And you can do the same thing. So that that's completely free. No accounts required. I think it just uses React and WebSockets, maybe Socket.io, something like that. They did it as a personal project just to see if they could. So you can create a room. You can add bots if you want to play against an AI. You can share a link with your friends that allows them to join as well. And it works pretty well. I, I didn't have any issues with it. So that is onegame.us. And both of those will be in the, the show notes. All right. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to find out more about what we talk about, we're at Views on View or devchat.tv. You can find me personally at Yagabush on Twitter. You can find Steve at Wonder5 and Austin at Stegosource. Hope you had a great time. Have a wonderful rest of your week. See you next Adios. time. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.